uh, this morning, Psalm 110. Uh, A wonderful psalm. I'll begin by reading verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, You might find it amazing that David overheard a conversation within the Trinity. If you'll notice, the the first word Lord is all in capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Hebrew word Jehovah. And I see I didn't do that on on the uh, PowerPoint. But that is, uh, in your text, it will have all capitals. Then the next word, Lord, is small letters. It's a different Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. So Jehovah said to my Adonai, my Lord. David overheard God the Father speak to God the Son. God the Son being David's Lord. But God the Father, Jehovah God, said to David's Lord, Jesus Christ, God the Son, he said, sit. The Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. And then it says in verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. Or as the note at the bottom says, in the day you lead your forces or your army. He says, uh, in holy garments from the womb of mourning, the dew of youth will be yours. This may be an obscure uh, chapter to you in the Bible, but I I, want to tell you that it is not uh, obscure to the New Testament writers. Because in the New Testament, this is known as the most quoted chapter in the New Testament from the Old. For example, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. That is quoted Uh, as many as 13 times in the New Testament. Just this one verse. And verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. That, verse 4, is quoted eight times and an entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, is given to the meaning of Melchizedek and the priesthood that's different from Aaron and first century Judaism. So when we look at this, it certainly was famous to New Testament writers. So I thought we should should be familiar with it. We, We should become aware of what this chapter is about and why it is quoted so much in the New Testament. So here's the three sections of this psalm. First, there's a heavenly enthronement. That's verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's in heaven 
at the right hand of God. Second, there's an eternal priesthood. Verse 4, he has sworn the Lord, Jehovah, all capitals, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now that's different from the priest under the Mosaic law because they died. But this is a priest, he who is a king, verse 1, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling, is also a priest. See, that's different. And then verses 5 to 7 is his military victory. The first enemy falls. So you have a heavenly enthronement, an eternal priesthood, and a military victory. So let's begin by saying, by asking this question. Who is spoken of here? Who is David's Lord? We know God the Father said to him, sit at my right hand. Well, a couple of things on this. This is the only text, at least to my knowledge, which speaks of anyone sitting at God's right hand. No one else has that privilege. That's, that's proximity, that's intimacy, that's authority. Everything is in that. You, you are the executive director of all that God does. And the only person who would qualify is what the angel said in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's ask this question. When did he sit? When did that happen? Well, again, we're not, we don't have to uh, stray too far because when did Jesus sit at the right hand of God? It was at his ascension, wasn't it? Crucified, raised the third day, ascending into heaven, and taking his enthroned position. Uh, All authority in heaven and earth is given to him, Matthew 28 said. When was it given? At his ascension, at his enthronement. And so Hebrews 1, verse 3, quoting from this psalm, says, After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's when he took his seat. That's when he became enthroned. Now, what is this speaking of? Well, it's speaking of that idea in the Old Testament, which is very common. There are so many texts and so many prophecies and so many ways in which it is described, but it's talking about the kingdom of God from the Old Testament standpoint, that will be coming in the future. The Old Testament talks about this kingdom of which the Lord would reign. When is that coming? Let me give you a couple of of these predictions. Daniel 2.44, for example. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left to others. That is, most kingdoms, the king dies, 
leaves his kingdom to someone else, maybe his successor, then he dies and leaves it. This king is not going to die and leave it to another. He says, so the kingdom will not be left to another. God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that won't be left to another, but it will break in pieces all other kingdoms and bring them to an end and stand forever. That's the kingdom. And Isaiah put it like this, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the last days, and that's the, not our last days, the last days of the old covenant age, but in the last days of the old covenant age, when the old covenant's ending, he says the, the house of the Lord, the mountain where the house of the Lord is, will be established as the highest of all and be lifted above the hills and all the nations, the Gentiles, will flow into it. And they will say to many people, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord and the house of God so that he may teach us his ways and we can walk in his paths. It predicts this great success when the kingdom comes, you see. So this is speaking of the kingdom. And here is the beauty of this. And I say this because, and I want to put this in front of you, because many times the kingdom of God is presented as something in the future. You've probably, uh, you're probably aware of a lot of the teaching today about the kingdom of God. One day Jesus will return and he will come to Jerusalem and he will set up his throne in Jerusalem and he will reign over all the earth and it will be an earthly Israelite Jewish uh, with boundaries, kingdom, and you go and they'll rebuild the temple over there. Well, here he says the kingdom is in heaven. Sit at my right hand till all your enemies are under your feet. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And it's not a future kingdom. But what? It's the kingdom that started at the ascension. This kingdom... Jesus is not going to be the kingdom, the king. He is the king. He's not going to be the Lord. He is the Lord. This kingdom has begun. And we are in the period of the kingdom age. The kingdom has come because Jesus has ascended and been enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Now, what is the proof of this kingdom? How do we know it's come? Well, look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. The evidence that the kingdom has come is seen in willing, voluntary servants of the king. People volunteer. They volunteer to follow him. They volunteer to serve him. Peter, standing in the midst of a hostile Jewish audience in Acts chapter 2, quotes this verse. And he says, God raised up Jesus, Acts 2.32, we are all witnesses, And therefore exalted at the right hand of God and receiving the Spirit, he poured out this which you're seeing and hearing. You're feeling it right now, Peter says. Here in this hostile 
Jewish audience, he preaches on Psalm 110, refers to it. And he says, the power of God that has come, this is on the day of Pentecost, he says, uh, this which you're seeing and hearing is the, is the proof that Jesus was raised from the dead at the right hand of the Father. And he says, David didn't ascend into heaven. David's not the Lord. But he heard the Lord say to his Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And when they heard that, and they felt that, and they sensed that, then they were convicted and cut to the heart, and 3,000 volunteered freely to follow Jesus as their Lord. That's what he's saying in verse 3. The evidence is that people will follow him. Uh, and let's not turn that around. Um, the way you have the power of God is not on the condition that you follow him. I mean, I know there's truth in that, but listen. He says they'll be willing when? When his power comes. His power changes your mind and your will. It's not that your will and your mind changes his power. No, he comes and he influences by the power of his risen life within you. Historians have discovered letters to Roman emperors uh, before 300 A.D. One of them was written by a Roman governor named Pliny, P-L-I-N-I-N-Y. And here's what he wrote. He said, and he's not a Christian, he's just writing to the, to the Caesar of Rome. He says, it seems that people of every age group, every class and rank, every profession are forsaking our Roman temples and following after the Christian faith. He said, it's like it's covering all the bases. Every age, every rank, every class, every place. They're abandoning the idol temples and following the Christian faith. And he's writing to the Caesar to complain. What can we do about this? This was around 200 A.D. What was the explanation for that? Why did Christianity take such a powerful hold in the Roman Empire and ultimately uh, transform it? Because, he says, when Jesus ascended, he went to the right hand of the Father... And he's there until his enemies are at his feet. And he sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter, saying, Rule! And his people offer themselves voluntarily as a result of it. There was one pagan named... He was a lawyer before he was converted. He was named Tertullian. And he became a Christian. Uh, Tertullian is famous because it was Tertullian around 200 A.D. that came up with the word Trinity. He was the first person to use the word Trinity. And he wrote, We, we Christians, are but of yesterday. But we already fill the cities. We already fill the islands, the camps, and even the Roman Senate. Even the palace of the Caesar. And that was 200 years after Christ. Christianity flourished. It grew. It was powerful. 
it is the fulfillment, one of the fulfillments of verse 3, your people will offer themselves to you. This is what Isaiah saw. The mountain of the house of the Lord be established as the highest of all the mountains. Everybody build their little little, uh, kingdom, their palace up on their mountain. And uh, the guy who could take the highest mountain, he was usually the most powerful king. So your kingdom and your mountain became synonymous. And he's saying, Isaiah says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be above all of them. And so you know Christianity now has more followers than any religion in the earth. 2,000 years after Christ. This is what Isaiah saw. South Korea had 1% professed Christians in 1900. 1%. Today, 30%, even 33% of all the people in South Korea are Christians. They are known for having the largest church in the world. All the nations will flow into it, Isaiah saw it. Time wouldn't permit me to tell about all this going on in China where there are literally millions of Christians meeting in secret house churches. Or in Africa, the fastest growing church is the Pentecostal church in Africa. And, and I love the Pentecostals. Praise God for Pentecostals. Somebody said, do you think uh, Pentecostals are going to heaven? I said, yeah, if they don't run past it. <laughs> Amen. And do you know who sends out more missionaries than any other country. Now, the United States sends out 34,000 missionaries every year. But amazingly, we're not the number one country in the world. The Christianity is flourishing in so many countries. Brazil, of all places, sends out more missionaries than any other country in the world. Isaiah said, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the highest. It will be lifted above the hills. Nations will flow into it. The way he puts it here, sit at my right hand till all your enemies at your footstool. Your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. See, this is the kingdom. It is the proof that the kingdom of God has come. I like uh, the way the New International Version puts it, Psalm 110 verse 3. Your troops, your people, will be willing in the day of battle. In the day of battle. In other words, even when there's resistance, even when you are being attacked. In an article in Christianity Today, it says that there are over 400,000 missionaries sent out every year by all denominations. (laughs) And there are over 30,000 missionaries that are sent to the United States from other countries. They feel like, I guess, that we're becoming a pagan nation. They are almost to the point where we have, we have as many missionaries sent to us as we are sending to others. <laughs> but missionaries are crisscrossing the globe. And it's in the day of battle when adversaries are at the worst. Your people are still willing. In a, in a class that I had last year, um, we, they talked about a young couple who 
were going to Saudi Arabia as missionaries. And when you go to one of these countries, in, like Saudi Arabia, some of the Islamic countries, where it is against the law under the penalty of death to bear witness for Christ or to seek to convert a Muslim. That, is, that puts you under the death penalty. So when a Christian couple goes to one of these nations of the earth, they go incognito. They cut off all communications. And you don't hear of them for two or three years. Uh, and there's this young couple that went, why on earth would a young married couple give their life and volunteer willingly to go into a country like that under the penalty of death and bear witness for Christ. The evidence is right here in Psalm 110 because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. And his power is greater than our passion for self-preservation. So what is the core of Christianity It is Christ at the right hand of God sending forth his power to influence the will of people like us. I mean, really, why are you all here today? (laughs) Don't you know it's icy out there? You're taking your life in your hands? Why would you be here? There's a subtle influence of the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, so that you sense that He moves you to worship. Evidence. Look at the last part of verse 3. I just want to comment on this before I draw it to a close. But he says, Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of mourning the dew of youth is yours. From the womb of mourning. What does that mean? It means that every day in the kingdom, when the fullness of the kingdom is there, it's morning. It's always morning. It's like you're you're refreshed, ready to face the day, anticipating it. You're strong, like a strong man ready to run his race. Resources are available. It's early in the morning for you. And the dew of youth will be yours. You're invigorated. It's like you're 21 all over again. The two marks of that kingdom in our life is that optimism of the morning and that vigor of our youth, that robust vigor of our youth. That, he says, comes with the risen Christ who comes into us. And by His Spirit moves us. It feels like mourning time in the kingdom. Now let me uh, let me give you some some practical observations from this. Three things that I want us to close with this morning. Here's some thoughts. First of all, if the kingdom has come and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, in light of the enthroned Christ. First, brethren, let us pray. If He is there in all authority in heaven and earth, then we need to pray. God, send that power. 
We do not, see, and I know as a preacher, uh, and I want people to do things that, and over the years, I've seen it in my life and others, we, we uh, are apt to manipulate or use guilt to get people to do things. You know what the one thing we can do that moves people more than anything? And it's pray. Ask God to send his mighty scepter of power into the hearts of people. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.20. He said, the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power. The best thing that we can do to get people to, to volunteer is pray. You see that in verse 3. And then here's a second observation from it. Not only the importance of prayer comes to the surface here, but the importance of a vision. Because he says here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Do we see him there? All authority in heaven and earth is his. Able to subpoena resources and, and summon angels. Then he says, you need to have a big vision. I'm like, amen. Let all the enemies of Jesus Christ fall at his feet. When we were thinking about starting this new congregation on Linden Road, this is back about 10 years ago, I had a lady who came up to me and she said, since time is so short and Jesus is coming soon, why would you start a new church? You're not going to have time to complete it. Well, that was 10 years ago. This, this text, you look carefully. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That indicates to me, and it's quoted more than any other text in the Old Testament into the New, that indicates to me that Jesus is Lord at the right hand of the Father and He's not coming back for a defeated church and a, and a, and a church that is running for its life or a defiled church. He's, he's going to come back when His enemies are under His feet and the kingdom has spread over all the earth and victory is clear in history. That's when He's coming back. He's sitting there until those enemies are down. Listen to this. This comes from uh, historian Kenneth Latteret, writing in the 1900s. He says, history leads us. When he, he looks at the, the church's progress through the 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he says this. History leads us to confidently predict that Christianity rather than dying out, is actually in its youth. Have you thought about that? That Christianity, though it's 2,000 years old, if it's in its youth, what if, if Christianity has grown this much in 2,000 years, and let me give you this quote from David Barrett, Christianity, for the first time in history says there are organized churches, Christian churches, in every inhabited country on earth. If Christianity, in 2,000 years, 
went to every corner of the globe, became the number one religion in the, in the world, what if we had another 2,000 years? What if we had four or six or even ten? Ah, that's the vision. It's like, whoa. And so that when Letterette says, he says, history leads me to confidently predict Christianity is actually in its youth. So what should we do? Retreat? Hide behind a fortress? No, we should make grand plans. Amen? We should, we should put Project 145 out there. Build a new children's building. Amen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw one hand, I think. No, I, I think we should. Plan for a future in the kingdom of God. Glorious future. Don't judge today by the snow. Judge it by Psalm 110. He's at the right hand of the Father. All his enemies are going to be under his footstool. Therefore, we should make grand plans for the kingdom of God. Here, here's why this is very important. Because in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 21, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord will stand. See, we need to hook our plans to his purpose. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, the heart of a man. But what succeeds? Ultimately, the only thing that succeeds is the ones we link to the purposes of God in his kingdom. And the purposes of God is that all the enemies of Jesus Christ would bow at his feet. So, so those are the kinds of things we invest everything into. That which will stand a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. So one of the things is prayer. One of the things is vision. And one final thing. The importance of courage, especially the courage of faith. B.B. Warfield wrote, he was a teacher at Princeton for many years and, and a well-respected well scholar. He said, this period in which we now live starts at the first coming of Christ and the ascension to the second coming of Christ. This is the period in which we now live. It's a time, he says, of advancing conquest on the part of Christ. And during its course, this period in which we live, he will conquer every rule, every authority, and every competing power. Christ progressively overcomes evil throughout this entire period. Paul put it like this in Ephesians 1.19. God worked in Christ by raising him from the dead, putting him at his right hand. You see, he's quoting Psalm 110. Ephesians 1.21. And he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He can, he can resolve any resistance. And he can do it easily. And he says he's far above all rule, authority, and dominion. And he's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he, God put all things under his feet. This is Ephesians 1.22 and gave, made him head over all, listen to this last phrase, for the church. 
All that authority is for us. Comes to bear on us. It's like if somebody asks you, uh, you men, what do you use your resources for? What do you use your possessions for? Isn't it all to aid, to help, to provide for your wife and family? Isn't that the whole point? So it all, he says, he put, him, put everything under his feet, Paul says, Ephesians 1.22, on behalf of the church. So prayer, vision, courage, we go forward in the name of the risen, ascended, and enthroned, and exalted, and glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for the truth of the ascended Christ. And we praise him, we worship him, we glorify him, and we love the fact that he is at your right hand. We trust and believe in him today. In his name we pray, amen and amen.